It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief. It was the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. In short, the period was so far like the present period that some of its noisiest authorities insisted on its being received for good or for evil in the superlative degree of comparison only. Well, so begins Charles Dickens' novel, A Tale of Two Cities. It's one of two historical novels that he penned, the other being Barnaby Rudge. It chronicles the excesses and cruelties perpetrated really by both sides in the French Revolution. As with most Dickens novels, the tale introduces us to a number of characters whose hidden motives and secret pasts weave together a bunch of seemingly unrelated threads until a, a central narrative arises. Eventually, the story focuses on something of a would-be love triangle involving the noble Charles Darnay, the brilliant but cynical drunkard, Sidney Carton, and the lovely Lucy Manette. So just fair warning, I'm going to give you some spoilers here. You've had 164 years to read this novel, so you can blame yourself. Uh, Carton loves Lucy, but his self-loathing keeps him at arm's length from her. Darnay loves Lucy as well. Eventually they marry. At one point, in a sort of uncharacteristic fit of sincerity, Carton confesses his love for Lucy. He swears that he'll, he'll never mention it again and tells her that she has inspired him to amend his ways. He even says that he would gladly give his life to save a life that she loved. And Lucy is moved by his sincerity and devotion. Oh yeah, and did I mention that Carton and Darnay, they look exactly alike? That's going to be a very convenient and important plot point going forward. Flash forward to the end of the book. The noble Mr. Darnay is unjustly imprisoned in France. He's awaiting execution at the hands of revolutionaries who want to blame him for the crimes of his father and uncle. Carton arrives in Paris. He learns what's happened to his romantic rival. He hears that a plot has been hatched to send Lucy and her daughter to the chopping block. So determined to redeem his life through one great noble act, Carton sneaks into Darnay's jail cell. He drugs him. He swaps clothes with him. He has him removed from the jail and, and scurried out of town. And because they look so much alike, no one notices the switch. Carton dies in Darnay's place, comforted that he has saved the woman that he loves and her family. His final words are justly well known. As he approaches his death, he says, I see a beautiful city and a brilliant people rising from this abyss. I see the lives for which I lay down my life, peaceful, useful, prosperous, and happy. I see that I hold a sanctuary in their hearts and in the hearts of their descendants, generations hence. It is a far, far better thing that I do than I have ever done. It is a far, far better rest that I go to than I've ever known. 
Tale of Two Cities ends with a moving act of sacrifice as a lesser man ennobles himself by standing in as a substitute for a better man who's been unjustly condemned to death. And I think part of the reason why the novel's conclusion is so affecting is that it taps into our sense of a deeper and truer sacrifice that shapes our lives. Dickens leaves us with a picture of salvation through substitution. And of course, that's right at the heart of the salvation that Jesus has accomplished for his people. Right at the heart of the gospel is the truth that Jesus, the perfect son of God, stood in our place. He took our condemnation. When he was crucified, he hung on the cross in our place so that we might go free. Now, it goes without saying that the noble love of a fictional man like Carton is a, a pale shadow of the much greater love that Jesus showed in history at the cross. Carton, the scoundrel, dies in the place of the innocent Darnay, and that is wonderful. How much better is the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus, the perfectly innocent and good Son of God, that he would die not to save the innocent, not in order to ennoble himself, but to save the guilty and to deliver those who were justly condemned. And what we're going to see in our passage today from the Old Testament book of Leviticus is that this idea, salvation by substitution, that the Lord Jesus would stand in our place and take our punishment on himself at the cross, that's not a new development that, that we only see once we get to the New Testament. Now, what we're going to see in our passage for this morning is that God has hardwired this idea into the life and the law of his people from the beginning. Now, before we launch into some of the specifics of the passage that Natalie just read for us, I'm going to take a moment and do something a little bit different. What I want to do is step back for a second and put Leviticus 16 in the larger context of the Pentateuch. So when we talk about the Pentateuch, it just means five books. We're talking about the first five books of the Bible, the Old Testament. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those five books kind of stand together as a literary whole at the beginning of the Bible. They're sometimes referred to as the Torah by our, our Jewish friends, right? It's just the word for the law. Uh, so they're sometimes called the books of Moses. What I want to do is take Leviticus 16 and, and step back for a second and try to understand it in the context of the entire Pentateuch, because I think there are some literary features of the way these first five books of the Bible are put together that are meant to point us to just how important this Day of Atonement really is to the storyline. We don't often think in literary terms when we come to the Bible. But it should come as no surprise that Moses and the other authors of Scripture, inspired by the Holy Spirit, would use literary devices, things like irony, alliteration, acrostics, to, to help convey their message and make it clear. Uh, the Bible is certainly more than a work of literature, but it's not less than that. It is significant that God's word, when it comes to us, comes to us not as a, a laundry list, right? not a simple list of facts and assertions, but it comes to us in a form. It comes to us as narrative, as poetry, in the form of speeches and songs. Right, the prophets and the psalmists, the authors of Proverbs and the, uh, the inscrutable book of Ecclesiastes that Mike is going to unpack for the youth, right, they all used the form of their writing to help communicate the meaning. And when we come to Leviticus 16, I think we see that Moses has presented this material to us in a chiastic structure. 
Okay, so if you feel a bit of like 10th grade literature class anxiety coming on, just relax. We're going to be okay. If you hang in and indulge me for a minute, I think you're going to find this helpful. And kids, this is where you can help the, your parents. They haven't been in class in a long time, so you guys are used to learning things. So maybe you could explain this to them uh, after the service if they're struggling with it. Okay, when we talk about chiasm, right, that gets its name from the, the Greek letter chi, just X, it's an X-shaped literary device. Uh, in a chiasm, literary concepts are presented in a sequence. First A, then B. Then they're repeated in reverse order. B, then A. So, I'll give you an example. Ben Franklin famously said, by failing to prepare, you are preparing to fail. Simple, right? Fail, prepare, prepare, fail. Or take the words of the Lord Jesus in Mark 2, verse 27. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, right? A, B, B, A. Sabbath, man, man, Sabbath. Okay, for our purposes, the, the important thing to see is that the use of chiasm has a point. It's meant to show us something. And what it shows us and what it does is it emphasizes the thing in the middle. So Ben Franklin, what does he want you to do? He wants you to prepare, right? So that's the middle of the chiasm. Failing to prepare is preparing to fail. What's the point? Prepare. What does Jesus want to emphasize? The priority of human beings over and against Sabbath regulations. So that's the middle, right? Sabbath man, man Sabbath. The important thing Jesus is saying is the thing in the middle, the, the, the human beings. Okay, that's important because what we see is that the first five books of the, Mo of the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, the Pentateuch, they have a chiastic structure. So in case you're helped by visual aid, I've got a chart for you. So uh, Matt Kramer deserves your uh, everlasting thanks if this is helpful to you because he formatted this so it could be seen. Right, if you look at the, the first five books of the Bible, you can see that Genesis, we'll call it A, presents us with certain themes. So they're listed out there for you. Expulsion from paradise, the, the separation of God's people from the nations, the promise of blessing in terms of land and descendants. Then you move on to Exodus. It presents us with themes like Israel in the desert, uh, the nation's rebellion, the subsequent plagues in Israel, the, the setting aside of the Levites for priestly service. Leviticus, which we've been considering, presents us with sacrifices in the tabernacle, right? And so the, that forms a sort of ABC structure. Then having sort of reached the middle, we return and, and we repeat the same themes in reverse order. Numbers echoes many of the same themes as Exodus. Deuteronomy presents us with many of the same things as Genesis. Again, we see the separation of God's people from the nations. We see blessing uh, promised in terms of descendants and land. We see now having been expelled from paradise, God's people preparing to enter into paradise in the promised land. Okay, so you have this sort of ABC, BA structure. And in case you think that's maybe just a meaningless coincidence, right? That you could see this kind of pattern in any book that you look at. I, I would only note that I've, I've been very merciful in just giving you a few brief examples. There, there are some examples of this chart that go on for pages and pages and pages, right? This is just an overview, right? But, but many scholars have noticed this structure. Okay, the important thing is, what, how do we know what's being emphasized in a chiasm? It's the thing in the middle. What's in the middle of the Pentateuch? Leviticus is. Okay, so, 
There's a book at the center of the Torah. And there's also a chapter at the center of the center. So if Leviticus is the center of the first five books of the Bible, there's a chapter that's really at the heart of the book of Leviticus. And to spoil the, the, the surprise, it's Leviticus 16. Let me give you another chart. All right. So Leviticus itself is set up like a chiasm within a chiasm. Leviticus 1 to 7 gives us laws about sacrifice and sanctuary. Chapters 8 to 10 show us the, the priesthood being instituted. Last week, we saw... Uh, laws about cleanliness and ritual pollution. Today, in chapter 16, we have the Day of Atonement. Then we're going to sort of recede from the chiasm, seeing chapters 17 to 20 address matters, again, of personal holiness and right conduct. Chapters 21 to 22 give us more laws about the priests. And then the, the final four chapters give us more laws about the sanctuary and sacred times and sacrifices that were to be offered. So again, you have this chiastic structure even within the book of Leviticus. And again, what's at the center? Chapter 16. So that's what's being highlighted. The Pentateuch centers, the sort of highlight of the Pentateuch is Leviticus. The very highlight of Leviticus is chapter 16. But there's yet another chiasm because even chapter 16 is presented to us in this same structure. Let me show you one more chart. And this isn't a chart because it actually is too big for the screen. Right, hopefully you can see a similar structure. The, the, the chapter starts, hopefully you noticed this when Natalie was reading, it starts with the Lord speaking. And then it gives some restrictions on Aaron's conduct. Right, then the people bring a sacrificial victim. You have a bull and two goats. You have the sacrifice of the bull, the sacrifice of the goat. And then you have those themes being repeated in sort of reverse order. I don't know, as Natalie was reading, maybe you noticed just how kind of disjointed the chapter felt. Like things, ideas are introduced in the beginning and then you have to wait like five or six verses for the goat that you just heard about to finally get killed. Right, it's because it's being set up in this chiastic structure. And again, the point is, the reason for all of this is what's at the center of the chiasm. So the Pentateuch centers on the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus centers on chapter 16. Chapter 16 itself in the center is what we see in verses 16 to 20. We read about the result of Aaron entering into the holy place and sprinkling the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat. It says there, thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleannesses of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleannesses. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the people of Israel. So I think what we're meant to see is that the whole of the first five books, the books of Moses, center on Leviticus. And all of Leviticus is pointing us to chapter 16. And all of chapter 16 is pointing us to this moment of atonement. Which is to say, I think we're on holy ground this morning, brothers and sisters. I, I think we're not meant to see this as just yet another sort of passage in the Bible, right? Heaven forbid we think that about any passages in the Bible. But I think the way that the, the first five books are structured is meant to sort of put a big circle, a big red star next to these verses and say, pay careful attention. God is trying to show us something. 
So let's walk through this passage and get a sense of what's going on. And hopefully the reason why those verses would be at the very center of the, the Pentateuch will become clear to us. So we'll try to get a sense of what's going on. I'll give you some application at the end. There in verses 1 to 2, we have important context for this chapter. It says there that the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. Okay, so we're back into the the narrative that we left off in chapter 10. So Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, made an unauthorized offering before the Lord in the tabernacle. Fire came out from before the Lord, and we're told that they died before the Lord. So the Lord communicates to Aaron through Moses that he is not supposed to come in to the holy place inside the veil at just any time. So if you remember, the tabernacle was, was set up as a large tent, There was an entrance on the eastern side. There's a smaller tent off to the west. So here's another visual just in case you have kind of a a need to um, uh, visualize it in your head. Right? You have a a large tent with a small tent in the west. Right? The small tent in the west had an entrance on the eastern side. And as you were coming in, uh, you were entering into what was called the holy place. In the holy place, there was a veil that separated off yet a, a smaller region called the Holy of Holies, or the most holy place. This is where the Ark of the Covenant was. That's where God's presence was understood to most specially dwell. This Ark was covered by what's called the mercy seat there in verse 2. And and that's a pretty lousy translation. It's based on tradition. Uh, Really, the the word means cover. Right? It's not a seat, it's a cover. The, the Ark of the Covenant is a box. You had the Ten Commandments in it. Right? And this, this uh, mercy seat is really a cover. It means an atonement cover would be a good translation. Uh, it was an, a cover for the Ark of the Covenant. It had carved cherubim on either side. And it was here, the Lord says, over the cover of the Ark that he was going to appear in a cloud. And the point is, Aaron can't just come in through that veil into the the presence of the Lord just any time he felt like it. He wasn't allowed to come into the most holy place uh, whenever the the idea struck him. Instead, the Lord is putting together a process where he can come in as a representative of Israel once a year. And that's that's the ritual that we see being laid out for us here in Leviticus 16. And what we see is that in order for that to happen, in order for Aaron to come into the most holy place as the high priest, the representative of the people, something had to be done about their sin and their uncleanness. Right? That fits in perfectly with what we've seen so far in the book of Leviticus. If the Lord is there, it's not safe for sinners. And so you see that before he can do anything on behalf of Israel, Aaron has to take care of his own sin. There in verse 3, we Read that he has to bring a bull and a, and a ram, right, to offer on his own behalf. Uh, in verses 4 and 5, he has to bathe himself and put on a, a simple linen garment. In verse 23, we read that he has to leave those inside the, holy pl- inside the tabernacle because they've been used inside the holy place. They were holy, and so Aaron couldn't take them back out into the common world. In verses 6 through and 11, we're told that he's to offer this bull as a sin offering. It makes atonement for him and for his house. In verses 12 to 13, we read that he has to take a censer full of coals 
And, and only then can he finally enter in behind the veil into the Holy of Holies. Now think about it. This is stressful stuff. His sons just died with a censer in their hands, trying to go into the presence of the Lord. And so here God says, Aaron, take a censer and come on in. Right? The idea is that in order for Aaron to go in, the holy place needs to be filled with smoke, as if to shield Aaron from, from seeing the glory of God's presence. Right there in verse 13, we read that this, this cloud will keep him from dying. Then in verse 14, we read this about Aaron. It says, he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. In front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. This is how Aaron makes atonement for his sin and for the sin of his family. Right? That's what verse 11 tells us the purpose of this sacrifice is for. He shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He'd go in with the blood of a bull offered for his sins and he'd sprinkle it on this mercy seat, on this atonement cover seven times. The idea was that this, this place where God would meet with his people, it would be sprinkled with the blood of sacrifices offered for the sins of the nation. But here as Aaron offers the sacrifices for himself, it's really just a prelude to the real drama because the point of the, this day of atonement that the Lord is giving to his people isn't just to deal with Aaron's sins, it's to deal with the sins of the whole nation. And so that really begins in verse 7, where Aaron takes two goats that the people have brought to him. There in verse 8, he casts lots to choose between them. One goat gets assigned to the Lord, the other to Azazel. Now what or who is Azazel, you ask? And I will tell you I have no idea. And importantly, neither does anyone else, no matter what the internet says, okay? It could be a place in the wilderness. It could be the name of a demon. It could just be a word for scapegoat. But we really can't be sure. But it doesn't really matter because the symbolism, I think, will become very clear in just a moment. And we're not left to guess what the meaning of this goat is. There in verses 9 to 10, we read that the goat that's been designated for the Lord will be used as a sin offering... While the, while the other one, the one designated for Azazel, will be sent out into the desert. These two goats represent God's provision for the sin of his people. Notice, this is important, there in verse 5, the two goats represent a single sin offering. It doesn't say sin offerings, there's, there's just one. There's two goats, but they represent sort of one act of offering. One solution to sin. Each one of these goats addresses an aspect of our condition as sinful people living in a sinful world. If you will, each goat represents something that's wrong for, with us. Something that God needs to fix in order for sinful humanity to come into his presence and dwell in his midst. And so let's look at these two goats. One goat there in verse 9 is offered up as a sin offering to the Lord. Its blood, we read a bit later, is, is again placed on the, the mercy seat. The picture here is that sin brings death. We could say that this goat took the penalty for the, the sin of God's people. That's what Nadab and Abihu had learned the hard way. When sin comes into the presence of God, the result is death. 
That's why Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden after they fell into sin. That's why we read in Genesis 3.24 that cherubim with flaming swords were posted at the entrance to the garden to keep them from coming back. To sin is to depart from the, the realm of life and cast your lot in with death. Right? God made it clear to Adam and Eve that, that when they sinned, if they sinned, the result would be death. Right? We saw that last week where, where death makes you unclean. Coming into contact with a corpse makes you unclean. The tabernacle as the, the place of God's presence is a place of life. Death is the final outworking of sin. And so, so to touch death is to become unclean. This goat represents the people. And its death represents what the sins of the people deserve. Its blood, as sort of representative of its life force, sprinkled on the mercy seat in God's presence is a way of showing that the price had been exacted, that sin had been dealt with, that it had received its just penalty and punishment. The goat bears the penalty of the people's sin. It dies. Now look at the second goat. We read there in verses 20 to 22 that the Lord said this about Aaron the high priest. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of the meeting and a tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. So Aaron would put both his hands on the head of the second goat, and he would, quote, confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. Right, those three words, iniquities, transgressions, sins, they, they point to three aspects, three ways that our rebellion against God manifests itself. Sin has the sense of, of falling short and missing the mark. Right? We, were, we were made for the glory of God, but we fall far short. We are like an arrow that failed to hit its target. Transgression has the sense of crossing a line. God told us not to do something. We cross over the line and do it anyway. Iniquity has the sense of being twisted or warped. Something is wrong with us. Something's not right deep down. Right? And so these three words are, are three different facets, different ways of getting at our status as we stand before God. We're not right. We're guilty. We're corrupted. And so on the Day of Atonement, Aaron would confess all of those things with his hands on the head of this goat. It was a way of putting them, it says there in verse 21, on the head of the goat transferring, as it were, the sins and transgressions and iniquities of the, of the people onto this animal. And then the animal would be sent off into the wilderness, into the desert, chaperoned by the hand of a man who is in readiness, it says there. The idea is that there was someone appointed to go with the goat until it got out into the wilderness to make sure that it didn't wander back into camp. The result of this ceremony was with, is that the goat, that the scapegoat, would bear the sins of the people far off. It would remove them from the camp, from the presence of God. 
For our purposes, it's important to see that this was a ritual of cleansing. Sin, transgression, iniquity, it brings a kind of stain, a kind of pollution to our souls. So there in verse 19, we see that Aaron's work in the tent with the blood had the effect of cleansing the altar of the Lord from all, it says there, all the uncleannesses of the people, right? Just the presence of sinful humanity meant that the tabernacle and the things in it had to be cleansed regularly. So there in verse 30, we read a summary of what's happening in these rituals. It says, for on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. This second goat has the effect of cleansing the people, bearing their sins far off into the wilderness. Right, you get the, the image there. The, the desert is remote. Uh, it's like we might think about the bottom of the ocean. Right, it's as far away as you can possibly get from where people live. And so the sins of the people are put on the goat and the goat is sent as far away as possible. So what do we learn then from Leviticus 16? What do we learn from this appointed day of atonement ceremony? Well, on one hand, we see what sin does to us. We see the problem. We see two seemingly insurmountable obstacles that face us as sinners. We were made to live in God's presence. Every longing in our lives, every vacuum in our hearts, every aspiration of our soul will only ever be truly filled when we are living for God and with God. But our sin stands against us. As sinners, we stand under a just penalty. We don't deserve God's love. We deserve his righteous anger. God looks at what we've done to his world and what we've done to each other and what we've done to ourselves, and he doesn't sit there with a sort of impotent and uncomprehending smile. But he's rightly angered. And so sinful people have a very real problem. But it's not just the penalty that our sin deserves. There's also the pollution of sin. It's not just what we do. It's, it's who we are. right? Even if we could just be forgiven, we're still not ready for life in God's presence. We would just ruin everything all over again. That's what we do. We would get our sin all over everything. And we'd be back at the beginning. And so friends, what we see here at the high point of the Pentateuch, at the high point of the book of Leviticus, at the high point of chapter 16, is that salvation through substitution is God's gracious and loving provision of atonement. God has a way of dealing with those twin terrors of the penalty of our sin and the pollution of our sin. On the Day of Atonement, a goat died as a substitute for the people. It took the penalty that they deserved so that they wouldn't have to bear it. And on that same day, another goat bore the sins of the people far off. It was cut off from the camp, from the people of the Lord and the presence of the Lord, so that they wouldn't have to be. Those goats served as substitutes. Their death provided atonement for the sins of the people. Can you see that in God's love, he has appointed a ritual through which the sins of the people could be dealt in its penalty, in its pollution. 
the people of God were saved through the death and the banishment of a substitute. There in verse 34, we have a, a kind of summary statement. This shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. Okay, so what does this mean for us? We no longer perform these Day of Atonement rituals. So why do we care about them now more than a thousand years later? Well, let me suggest two things that this chapter shows us. First, I think in these instructions, we see the greatness of the work of Christ. The Day of Atonement was the high point in the Jewish calendar. It still is. It's Yom Kippur uh, is, uh, is how our Jewish friends celebrate it. Right? And, and think about it. What could be greater, what could be better than God graciously taking away the sin of his people so that they could be with him? But friends, it was never meant to be an end unto itself. It was never the point. Yom Kippur was never the sort of final plan of God. It turns out, as God's redemption unfolded, Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement ritual, it was meant to prepare God's people for the work of the Lord Jesus. The Day of Atonement was meant to give the people a category. It was meant to create a placeholder in their minds that God's grace would take the the form of salvation through substitution. And friends, that's exactly what the Lord Jesus came to do. In God's great and shocking act of redemption, he sent his own son to take on human flesh, to become one of us, and to stand in as our substitute. Jesus offered his life on the cross in our place. Like the scapegoat, our sins were placed on him. Like the goat of the offering... He bore our penalty. He bore the punishment that we deserved. The rituals of Leviticus 16 were brought to completion. They were perfected in that sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And that's not just me sort of guessing. That's exactly what the author of Hebrews is saying in in Hebrews chapters 9 through 10. As glorious as the Day of Atonement was in the life of Israel, brothers and sisters, the work of Jesus on the cross it is infinitely more glorious. Let me just briefly point, to you, point out to you three ways that Jesus fulfills and supersedes and explodes the things that we read about here in Leviticus 16. There are many more than three, but you can unpack these at greater length by reading the book of Hebrews. Right, but the goal here, I think the reason why we as Christians want to, to be familiar with Leviticus 16 is so that the work of the Lord Jesus and his person and his love would be more precious to us. So the first thing, again, I'm going to show you three things. Jesus, we see, is a better priest than Aaron. The whole ceremony here in Leviticus rides on the work of the high priest. He is the representative of the people. When he goes into the presence of God, he is, as it were, bringing the people with him. But what we see in Leviticus 16 is that Aaron doesn't actually belong there. He had to offer a bull for his own sin. 
He had to put on special clothes. He had to fill the holy place with smoke, lest he see the glory of the Lord and die. But friends, not so the Lord Jesus. We read in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 27, speaking of Jesus, he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sin and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself up. See, friends, Jesus is perfectly qualified to carry us into the presence of God. He is a perfect priest. He has no sin of his own to atone for. And so he's qualified and able to deal with ours. The second thing we see is that Jesus offers a better sacrifice. In the end, bulls and goats are not really suitable stand-ins for human beings. I think you, you get that intuitively, right? There's, there's something just sort of not equal about a goat and a human soul. Right, if you give me your car and I wreck it, and then I offer you a skateboard in its place, I haven't really made up for what I've done, right? I haven't really atoned for my sin. Right, even in Tale of Two Cities, Carton has to substitute his own life for Darnay. He could have put a sort of bag of flour in Darnay's place. Right, something less can't atone for something greater. If you want a substitute for human beings, you need something better. And so Hebrews tells us why this day of atonement ritual in Leviticus 16 could never be a permanent solution. It says in Hebrews 10 verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Uh, in verse 11 of Hebrews 10, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But brothers and sisters, Jesus offered himself the spotless, sinless, sublime son of God. He offered himself in our place. Jesus is the better sacrifice, doing what a bull and a goat could never finally do. And that points us to the third thing for us to see, and that is Jesus provides us with better access to God's presence. Right, we see in Leviticus 16 that Aaron had to go through a lot just to go into the Holy of Holies. There was a sacrifice, special clothes, smoke from the censer. Right? Again, the point was clear. God is not safe for you. Right? No one's even allowed to be in the, the sort of area, it says, when, when Aaron goes into the Holy of Holies. You don't really belong here, was the message. But friends, when Jesus died, the veil in the temple, that curtain that kept human beings away from the presence of God for their own safety, we read in Matthew 27, verse 51, it was torn in two. Right, the point was clear. The death of Jesus has opened a way. The access that the people of Israel had through the Day of Atonement, provisional access, temporary access, terrifying access, has been replaced. It's been replaced now with an invitation for God's people to draw near, not once a year, but always. Again, the book of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, that, that phrase would make no sense to Aaron, who just watched his sons die going near the holy places. Confidence? Enter with confidence? 
Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Do you see the death of Christ has opened a new and living way for us. And so now we can draw near to God by virtue of our great priest and his great sacrifice. And so Christian, you don't have to wait for a special day once a year. You don't have to fear entering into the presence of God. You don't have to stay at a respectful distance. Jesus bore the penalty of your sin. And so there is none left for you. Jesus took your sin. He was cut off. He was removed, sent away from the presence of God on the cross so that you can be brought near. Can you see how good that is? Leviticus 16 verse 34 reminds the people that this is a permanent statute. That the people of Israel would need this ritual of atonement through substitution every year. And Jesus came and he paid that bill once and for all. Right, that's why we don't celebrate the Day of Atonement anymore. Right, once your mortgage is paid off, you stop making the monthly payments. Right, once the sin debt of God's people is permanently dealt with by the death of Jesus, there is, there is no need for yearly installment payments anymore. Friends, this is really good news. If you are in Christ, your debt is paid. Your penalty has been taken. Your pollution has been cleansed. You don't bear it anymore. Your guilt, your shame, it's all been dealt with. Can you see that if you were an Israelite in the time of Moses, when Leviticus 16 is being written, the the Day of Atonement would be the very best thing you could imagine. Your sins, your transgressions, your iniquity, all of your sense of, of falling short, all of your sense of the way you've failed, all of your sense of of the way you've sinned against your creator, everything wrong with you, taken away. Not at your cost, but through the the death of another. How gracious of the Lord, how, how loving, how kind that he would provide for his people another way. And friends, how much greater is that salvation that that God has accomplished through the sacrifice and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus? If the Day of Atonement was a source of joy to the people of Israel, how much more should we rejoice as we contemplate the cross of Christ? The second thing I think we need to see in this chapter, Leviticus 16, is that it ought to cause us to despair of any other way of being right with God. If God has provided salvation through substitution in the death of his son, right, consistent with the pattern laid out for us in Leviticus 16, what other way of salvation could there possibly be? If this is the remedy that God has given, what other remedy exists? How else could sin's penalty be paid? How else could sin's pollution be washed away? Are you going to atone for your, per, for your sin by your personal goodness, right? Is your plan to deal with your sin, I'm just going to be a more loving person. 
I'm going to be generous, and that will atone for my sin. I'm going to be on the right side of the social issues. I'm going to be moral and upright. Friend, is that your plan? I would just ask, how are you going to be the solution to your sin problem when you are your sin problem? The gospel of salvation through substitution, it destroys our pride. And it leads us to throw ourselves on the mercy and love of God. The Lord Jesus once told a parable in which he contrasted two different ways of trying to deal with our sin problem. Two different ways of trying to be right with God. We read the little story in Luke 18, starting in verse 10. Jesus says this, Two men went into the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, so that's an upstanding religious man, and the other a tax collector, the lowest of the low, the worst kind of sinner. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, the Pharisee is the good person. He's the one who represents sort of upright morality. He stands in for all of the ways that we might try to be good enough to earn God's love and salvation. And by all accounts, this, this Pharisee was pretty good, better than you and me probably. He stands in the temple. There he is in the presence of God, and he draws near. He prays, and he pleads all of his good works. He says, God, accept me on the basis of all the things I've done. And Jesus doesn't tell us that he's lying. He really did do all of those good things, presumably. The tax collector is a sinner. He's the bad guy. He stands in the temple of God. He stands in the presence of God. He draws near to God in prayer. And, and on what basis does he dare come to God? Mercy. And that's extraordinary. But I think there's something there that Jesus' audience would have picked up on that, that might escape us. The Greek word that the tax collector uses for mercy it's that same word that, that would have been used to, to translate the idea of the mercy seat or the, the atonement cover in Leviticus 16. The tax collector stands in the temple. He stands outside the mercy seat, outside this atonement cover where the blood of sacrifices would be applied to atone for the sins of the people. And, and here, crippled with guilt and shame, overwhelmed by the, the pollution of his sin, weighed down by the penalty of his sin, understanding that he does not belong there. He cries out. He cries out for the mercy that he knows is available. He cries out to God on the terms of the Day of Atonement. God, have mercy on me. Jesus says that guilty man who, who pled for mercy, who humbled himself, who came to God on those terms... Jesus says that man was justified. He was right with God, not the other one, not the one who insisted on being treated on the basis of his behavior. 
And so, friend, what keeps you from humbling yourself today? What prevents you from crying out to God for salvation that he offers to anyone who will come to Jesus in humble faith? Leviticus 16 shows us that God has appointed a way for your sins to be dealt with. Salvation through substitution. Let's pray. Our God, we worship you in your holiness. And we know that we could never draw near to you were you not also a God of incredible love and mercy. And so we delight in what we see in your word that you have provided salvation for us in your love through the gift of your son. Lord Jesus, you stood as our substitute. You hung on the cross as our substitute, taking our penalty, taking the pollution of our sin on yourself. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would fill our hearts with love for Jesus and delight in all that he's done for us. We pray, Spirit, that you would humble us, that we would despair of coming anywhere near God's presence on the basis of anything in us but that we would delight in coming to him on the basis of Christ's work. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.